remember when politics was made up of a cast of good chaps? When standards were dutifully upheld? When honour and integrity defined public life in this country? Well, perhaps not. Perhaps <laughs> a golden age like that never quite existed. But it is fair to say that standards do appear to have been slipping. From broken Covid rules, remember those? To jobs after government controversial, to put it mildly, ministerial behaviour to a revolving door of independent ethics advisers. Standards have been in the spotlight. So what's been going on and what's been going wrong? Is there damage and is the damage permanent? Is the age of good chaps really over if it ever existed? And most importantly, what could be done to fix the problems that exist? We've brought together the heads of three of the UK's leading think tanks to offer some deep thinking on the issues by the experts beyond the 24 hours news cycle. I'm Paul Johnson. Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. Welcome to the Expert Factor. So, as we've heard, there has been a lot about standards in public life in the news over recent years. The most egregious, uh, probably the COVID rule breaking, but plenty more. But before we get on to what the problem is and what to do about it. Can we just define some terms, Hannah? What do we mean by standards in public life? What are standards? What we mean when we talk about standards in public life is essentially the behaviour of anyone who is an elected politician or anybody else working in the public service or who's been appointed to a a public role. And we mean their personal behaviours when they go about doing those jobs. There is a committee, the Committee on Standards in Public Life, which was set up in the early 90s by John Major after a series of scandals that affected his government, which became known as the Sleaze Scandals. And that committee, one of the first things it did, and I should probably declare an interest as having been its secretary at one point in my career, but one of the first things it did was try to crystallise what those standards are that the public has a right to expect of people who are in public life. And it came up with seven principles, which it said it wasn't inventing. It was just trying to write down what it felt public expectations already were. And its seven principles, and this is my party trick, were honesty, objectivity, openness, accountability, selflessness, integrity, and leadership. And those are things which now form the basis of lots of codes of conduct for people in different areas of public life and that people are expected to follow. I think it's interesting that we've become more concerned about these sorts of standards over time. It's for the first time in the 90s that it really became a political imperative to crystallise this thinking, but it's arguably become more and more important over time. And I would say that Boris Johnson perhaps is the most recent example of someone who has fallen foul of expectations about how an individual should behave in doing their job, having had to step down as Prime Minister after a series of occasions on which people, most notably his own MPs and ministers, felt he got the judgments wrong on standards in public life. Anand, um, let's put Boris Johnson to one side for a minute. Uh, is there really reason to believe that things have got worse since we were lads? Uh, well, I tend to believe that everything's got worse since I was young, but on reflection, probably not. No, I think we took a lot of things for granted back then. We talk about things now that I think back then people wouldn't have bothered with but were important. If you think about careers after politics or careers after a career in the civil service, the importance of this, the danger of corruption. I think it's good that we're having conversations about 
all these kinds of things, whether it's, you know, how, how our political parties are funded, how people should behave in office. I get frustrated by this debate because it's couched in very specific terms, isn't it? I mean, the very fact we have to say, what do we mean by standards in public life tells me that there's something wrong with the debate because it's not done in a way that will tell ordinary people what's going on. And I think for me, one of the key things about this whole debate is it is related to and coincides with a serious loss of trust in politics on the part of the population. And that, for me, ultimately is a sign that this is not just a matter of concern, but potentially dangerous to the workings of our system. Well, there's a lot in that. Can I, can I, um, one thing I really did want to pick up in this conversation, actually, and you brought it up right at the beginning of that, was this issue of jobs after politics, mm. uh, whether it be ministers or MPs or senior civil servants going on into jobs related to what they were doing. Is that really a problem? I mean, I, I suppose I've got some sympathy with someone who has spent a period of their lives, maybe they've been the civil servant in charge of some aspect of transport or environment or pensions or what have you, or they've been a minister doing that, and they lose their seat or they move on to another job. What else are they supposed to do? Well, in many cases, they have very, very generous pensions, and it's not a question most people get to ask, oh, do I have to live on this pension? Well, yes, because that's what people do when they finish their main job. So that's the first thing. The second thing, there are all sorts of issues around the edges here. One of the things I'm quite interested in is it's not just a question of what they go on to do. It's a question of when, while they were serving in government, they were asked whether they would be interested in doing it. That, it seems to me, has a material impact on someone's ability to do their job properly. If you know, for instance, that a major multinational is lining up a place on the board for you while you're working in public service, are you seriously telling me that that won't impact on the way you do your job? So there are all sorts of issues there where I think the role of money in politics or in public policy can be pernicious. It's not always pernicious, but I think at the very least, we need to be clear about what we expect from people and to have rules to that effect. I, I totally agree with the point you're making there, Anand. I do think you're right, though, Paul, that we have to be a bit careful on this. We also simultaneously have this debate around the quality of people in public life, and people worry about the fact we have career politicians who, you know, the whole they become a spad, they then they become an advisor, and then they go into politics, and they don't have any sort of real life experience. And we say, oh, you know, it'd be really good for people who have serious experience and skills to bring those into politics and to want to do so. But if you are also saying to those people, if you go into politics for a stint to do your bit of public service, when you come out, actually, you won't be able to work and make, make use of those mm -hmm. skills back in the private sector or wherever it is that you've been for a, a period, that changes the calculation for people mm -hmm. about whether they want to spend some time in, in politics. So we have to be quite careful, I think, when we're thinking about these rules. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a balance to be struck. I mean, there are two extremes here saying absolutely no, you can't and saying actually you can go on and do whatever you want. Somewhere in between the two, there is probably a happy medium. But I think it, it, it is an issue worth debating and discussing because if it's done badly, it can corrode the quality of politics and public policy. And, you know, if we have a, a, a notion that people should be objective when they're making decisions yeah. uh, in, in public <laughs> life, if you are playing into your calculation all the time, what is this going to do for my career post-politics? And that doesn't really enable you to be objective. Just briefly further on this particular issue, how effective is the Cabinet Office unit that is supposed to oversee this? As I understand it, they're supposed to tick off how long you might have to wait between your political or civil service job and going on to some other job or indeed say that there are limits to the things that you can be involved in with that. How is that actually an effective mechanism? 
I think the the chair of ACABA, which is the sort of higher level body which looks at the most senior appointments, Eric Pickles, has said that he doesn't think that they do have the powers that they need. And the government has recently said that it will try to strengthen those powers. They've been relatively vague about it, but putting some requirements in civil servants' contracts when they go into jobs and also uh, making ministers sign a sort of deed to recognise that they have to do what ACABA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, asks of them when they leave. Because at the moment, ACABA doesn't really have teeth as a watchdog. It can have an effect and it can have an effect. Mostly, I think the effect is on the prospective employer rather than the person thinking about taking up a job. So it can try to embarrass Mm -hmm. by saying in public, oh, you know, somebody's going to take a job and we've advised against it. And there are employers who wouldn't want that reputational effect. But at the moment, civil servants and ministers can pretty much ignore what ACABA says. As we've seen, we saw with Boris Johnson, we saw with George Osborne and other people who have just gone straight into jobs, uh, despite ACABA telling them that they, they shouldn't do so. So they can say you shouldn't, but they just ignore it. They rely on whether people think that there's reputational damage to them uh, or whether they weigh against that the pecuniary advantages of going into these jobs. Which in terms of public opinion is almost the worst of all worlds, isn't it? Is that there's someone there saying this is wrong and it happens anyway. Yeah. So they've got any legal teeth? Not at the moment, no. But this is what the government has has said. Uh, The Committee on Standards in Public Life made some proposals about how to strengthen the system and the government has said that they are going to to look at that, but we haven't yet seen what that's going to look like. Well, that is extraordinary. I I confess I hadn't realised that you had this whole architecture which actually has no teeth at all in terms of actually preventing people from doing anything. Which is that did that refer just just briefly, did that apply to the Sue Gray case? I mean, could she have just gone straight to work for the Labour Party without taking any notice of any of this? She could have done. The the reputational damage I think there would be again the Labour Party thinking, you know, we've made a big deal about other people doing this. Are we just going to ignore the rules in this context? But it's entirely reputational. She's no longer a civil servant at that point and if she's not bothered about going back into the civil service, then you know, there's nothing to stop her. You learn something new every day. I genuinely hadn't appreciated (laughs) that essentially uh, you could go on and do whatever you wanted. I suppose part of good chap, if we had to define it, is having a sense of shame, which doesn't strike me as a particularly solid basis for rulemaking in politics. And I think increasingly on lots of these things, there's a calculation from from people in public life that it will blow over, like any reputational damage will be quickly (laughs) forgotten. And so if they're prepared to ride it out, whether it's in relation to second jobs or Mm. other sorts of scandals, then, you know, probably the public will forget. Probably it won't have electoral consequences for people who are in public life. That, I think, was often Boris Johnson's calculation, Mm -hmm. as it turns out, wrongly. Um, There's a sense that everyone's tarred with the same brush. The electorate won't necessarily distinguish one lot from another. And that's where it's interesting, I think, what what approach Labour decides to take when we really get into the teeth of the uh, general election campaign next year. They had. They obviously made a lot of sort of ethical standards issues when Boris Johnson was mm-hmm. um, prime minister, and they have referred to Rishi Sunak's emphasis on leading a government of integrity when they've disagreed with the decisions that he's made. And they have got some proposals around ethics that they they're putting forward. But how strong they strongly they decide to go on that is a differentiating factor between them. And, and and the the current government and what that then translates into if they then win the election, I think will be an interesting thing to watch because they might just decide that actually those aren't the vote winning issues and they will have, as often is the case, things that you feel very strongly morally about in oppositions start to start to blur a bit when you get into government. 
So we, we've seen a lot of issues around bullying, the Dominic Raab, Priti Patel type cases. To what extent is this worse than it was or it's now in the public domain? I mean, let me, let me be honest. I worked in the civil service in the early 2000s and I saw what I would suggest or knew of what was worse behavior or at least as bad behavior as some of the things that people have had to step down for more recently. I mean, is, is there is there actually a good news story here in the sense that we're actually taking this more seriously and that in years and decades past, this was largely ignored, accepted, swept under the carpet, just part of what people did? I think that's definitely the case. I think this is definitely, at least in part, a story about changing a changing sense of what is acceptable behavior. And, you know, maybe people are starting to behave differently because they see that they're could be consequences for them and for their career of of behaving uh, badly, but you know the fact that the new bullying system of you know to report bullying in Parliament has had sort of hundreds of complaints made to it in its first uh, few years of existence. I don't think means that suddenly there is there's much more bullying. Mm. I think it means that actually staff and members feel that there's a point in reporting this stuff because something might happen as a result mm. and they're starting to have a bit more faith in the system that actually this stuff will be can be challenged effectively. I mean I say I mean there are two things. I mean firstly societal attitudes have changed. I mean you know just think about sport, think about the Mason Greenwood case. These are debates we wouldn't have been having I don't think 10, 15, certainly 20 years ago. But secondly, there are structures in politics. And I still feel that in politics, you have these structures where there are massive power imbalances, where you have close working relationships with your boss, if you're a very junior staffer, where you depend on your boss to see, help you up the greasy pole of politics if that's where you want to go. I just think we need a lot more transparency. We need something that approaches functioning HR. We need to have a system that provides protections for people in jobs where they're very, very exposed to this kind of bullying, whether it's sexual or not. But also, I think clarity for for those who have the power yeah um because some of them started their career in a different age and and as i said at the start our system for managing these sorts of issues has evolved over time mm. and is is complicated and there are different sets of rules and expectations which if you've been working in a different context and haven't noticed how these <laughs> things are changing i don't think it's an excuse but we do also have a responsibility to to everyone in, in public life to make sure that the, the rules and the processes yeah. are, are clear. Because I think it's really unfortunate how often in recent years we've had a an outcome from a, an ethics process and then the response has been to say, oh, the, the process was wrong. Yeah. We had this with Owen Patterson. We had the same response from Dominic Robb, which was largely allowed to go unchallenged by Rishi Sunak, which I think was a mistake on his part, to say, you know, the, the process was unfair rather than to address the real issues. And as you were saying earlier, Anand, and, you know, that's almost more damaging if it's not just that people might or might not get away with this behavior, but if the system is seen to be failing, then that means that people don't have confidence in it. And that's an unsatisfactory outcome, I think. If, if you look back over the last of the period, I can remember the last 30, 40 years or whatever, this came really came, the whole issue of standards in public life really came to the fore under the John Major government. And then again, with the expenses scandal in the late 2000s, and, and now with a whole series of things in the last four or five years, is this something that really affects governments after being in power quite a long time, more than a fresh government, do we think? I guess there's there's a, a, probably a, a number of different things in play, though, aren't there? There's 
there's obviously it takes a bit of time for you to to be in government to make mistakes for them to come to light and to emerge. Um, I think um, there can be an element of of people getting used to being in power and getting used to being the people making the decisions and not having to mm. you know defend them except to their own peers and and their supporters and so not having an expectation that they will be held to account because they're the people who who are in charge. There may be an element of that. I do think there's something for when governments have been in power f- for longer for them to start to be extra careful about these things. And they also have to be really careful about the precedents they set for themselves, because as soon as you decide on one issue that actually, well, in this case, the, you know, the politics of the situation would just be so much more convenient to brush this under the carpet or for this individual not to make the consequences quite as strong as they might be for someone else. You start to set those precedents. You yeah. start to undermine your own moral compass that you might wish to have set at the start of your period in government. But you mentioned expenses, Paul, and that's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? Because that's not wrapped up with any particular party or anything. It is, it is wrapped up with the sort of cowardly debate about remuneration mm. for MPs, a deliberate decision not to put salaries up, but a nod and a wink to MPs that mm. you can make it up on the side. I mean, it was almost as if the system was encouraging behaviour that would have been off-putting to the public had they known about it because no one had the guts to say, we're not being paid enough. So that, I think, is something else we'll probably need to talk about is remuneration, You know what MPs should, should earn and how we make the system as transparent as possible. And exactly the same happen, is happening, I think, with second jobs. That was yeah. the, the willingness of political parties to allow their MPs to take second jobs because the MPs say to them, oh, well, you know, it's not worth my while to be in politics unless I'm able to earn you know, a few tens of thousands here and there on the side. I think is really undermining of, of public confidence in, in politics if they think that their politicians are not entirely devoted to their job but, but doing other things. But that is for exactly the same reason. It's because we've decided that there's an acceptable limit to, to what we will pay politicians. So we need to effectively enable them to make extra money on the side. That's interesting. I, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that there's a big problem about MPs having second jobs. Presumably, you have in mind a hierarchy. It's okay if they do a bit of writing or a bit of speaking, maybe a little bit of lawyering, but you you don't want them to be going working full-time in an investment management company or something. But that's quite a difficult thing to manage, I guess. It's not obvious that they should be working absolutely full-time at being MP, or is it? I I think it is pretty obvious. I mean, you are right that there is is an implicit hierarchy. And, you know, the other argument that's made is it enhances Parliament to have people who are doing other jobs and bringing that experience into Parliament and that day-to-day experience. I don't think that one holds water at all, by the way, because if we want to privilege the life experience of journalists and lawyers and have that represented in Parliament, we're doing really well. But there are quite a lot of other um, a lot of other careers which are not represented at all in Parliament. Yeah. So that doesn't really work. For me, I, I think it's a, I don't think that we should put limits on how much money people can earn. I do think there's a time thing. I mean, even if you have a really safe seat, and this is the this is the key problem, there are MPs who don't really have to worry about winning their seat in a in our first past the post system because their seats haven't changed hands for for mm. decades or centuries practically. But their constituents don't deserve a worse service because of that. And I think that there ought to be a limit on the amount of time. And, you know, you can debate what that time is, but that Mm. you can spend on doing stuff other than your full career. So you're not against it altogether, but you think there should be time limits on it. I mean, there's a really interesting question floating behind this, and it's something we're hoping to do some work on, probably something we should devote a whole episode to, which is 
what do we think MPs should do? What is the job? Could you write the job description of an MP? And the simple answer to that is no. It's not formally a job, is it? They're not formally. I mean, no, some but, strange kind of. What What is our expectation of the role that MPs should play? I mean, for some people, it is they should be in their constituency the whole time, and they're essentially there to represent their constituency and bring back as many goodies from Westminster as they can. For others, it is your legislators. You know, I really want my MP to be a minister so that they're on the world stage. I mean. There are so many conflicting demands, as it is, if you think about it. I remember we did a In Conversation event with Ian Blackford recently, and I hadn't really thought about this before. I mean, he spent the best part of two days a week traveling to and from Westminster. Because he was… Sky. I was Sky. Uh, one way away. Now, his capacity to have a second job, I think, would have been infinitely more limited than a London MP, for instance. So there are all kinds of inequities there. But in terms uh, of the role in the constituency, I mean, obviously all ministers have a second job because they're supposed to be yeah. a constituency MP, and they're also supposed to be running really quite complicated things like the Home Office or the economy. And yet we seem to expect them to be both constituency MPs and doing these jobs which mm -hmm. should be far more than than full-time. And the other extreme, of course, is Nadine Doris, who said, <laughs> I've been spending all my time dealing with casework, so what's the point of going to Parliament? Yeah. And, and is that a problem? I mean, it's uh, has the role of the MP changed over time? I mean, my sense is that the expectation in terms of casework is much higher than it was in days past. I think that's true. I think it possibly started in 97 with the Labour government with a large majority where there wasn't really much need to have lots of MPs hanging around Westminster to vote. And it was really quite convenient if they spent more time in their constituencies because, you know, you didn't need them to, to win the votes on legislation in Westminster. And I think societal expectations of MPs have changed that they've got used to. Maybe you could sort of pair it with a sort of sense of a, a loss of deference towards MPs. So rather than them being the sort of the ultimate person to whom if you've got a problem you can't solve in any other way, you might go to your MP. It's now then more of somebody who's working on your behalf, as, mm. as Anand describes it. And actually, if you've got a problem of any sort with your, you know, your boundary dispute with your neighbour or whatever it is, you might go straight to your MP. Add to that the fact that, you know, our state is getting ever more complex, as you've uh, very accurately described in your book, Paul, you know, the, the welfare... That's the yellow one, isn't it? That's the yellow one yeah. with the rabbit, yeah. yeah follow the uh, money. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the welfare state is very complicated. The immigration system is very complicated. And actually, you need people who are immersed in these issues to, to help to guide people through it to some extent. And if we, um, you know, and some of the funding for some of the other systems that used to, to help people with that has been cut, MPs are becoming a sort of person of first resort now, I think, more than a, a person of last resort. But I think on top of that, there are at least two other changes worth pointing out. One... I think Labour's experience in Scotland, where one of the reasons why the Labour Party was wiped out in Scotland was this perception of arrogance that they didn't bother travelling to the constituencies, has made politicians wary. You just notice on Instagram now how many days a week politicians are, send, are, are posting photos of themselves in their constituency. Being present is seen as being important. The other aspect, which is really interesting, I don't wholly approve of, is this ultra-localism, which is to say... We're not going to select them because they grew up in the next door constituency and so don't understand the issues we face. We have to pick someone. And that ultra-localism, I think, is changing politics quite a lot as well. Alan, you raised the issue of how much we pay MPs. Mm -hmm. um, it's about 80,000 a year, isn't it, yeah. from, from memory? Yeah. And to some people, that would appear like an awful lot of money. That's, mm -hmm. uh, what, two and a half times the average wage, a bit more than that, actually. 
to others who might be some some MPs might see as their peers who are you know, working in London in professional jobs that might not appear so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you raise that point because you wanted to say actually we should pay them more, and if we paid them more, we'd be better MPs and better behaviour? I think we should pay them enough that the argument that I need to have a second job that takes up a significant amount of time becomes a far weaker one. Yeah. And that might mean paying enough to attract and retain the people who have decent professional middle-class salaries. So I would go higher. Yeah. Uh, I would tidy up the expenses system and make it done through salary a little bit more. And I think we need to be brave enough to have that conversation in public. So we talked a lot about behavior. We've talked a lot, a bit about how the structures we have can create behavioral issues. I mean, do we do we get the wrong people in politics in the first place? Does the political system attract people who are more likely to behave badly in the first place? I mean, firstly, you should, everyone should read Isabel Hardman's book. Oh, absolutely. Which is wonderful. That's the, why we get the wrong politicians. Why we get the wrong politicians. So we sort of get it. And actually, she isn't arguing that we get the wrong politicians, but it's an interesting book. And one of the great things I learned from that book is just how much of their own money MPs spend getting into mm-hmm. politics in the first place. In, in many cases, it's tens of thousands of pounds that they've either lost through having to give up a job to go and campaign, or they've spent on that campaign to get into the field. So actually, that automatically precludes a large number of people from getting involved in politics. And you know, I think it's a very, very big simplification. One of the most troubling things of our age is this kind of, oh, they're all in it for themselves, which more and more of the public think, or they're all the same as each other, which equally a lot of the public think. I don't think either of those things are true, mm. but it's, it is a perception that is starting to stick. And what that does is it allows space for populism. It allows space for we the people versus them, the elite and the establishment. And that is one of my fears about it. So no, I don't think we necessarily get the wrong politicians. I think we give them, as we've just been discussing, a job that is almost impossible to do because no one can tell them what that job is. In many cases, it imposes financial sacrifices on them. And in many cases, as with expenses, the rules encourage them to do things that the public might see as a little bit sort of wrong. Uh, so I think the system as much as the individuals is, is what we should be thinking about. And, and just a personal reflection, I do think particularly that view that they're all the same, mm. it couldn't be more wrong. I mean, I don't have a huge experience of working with politicians, but I've got enough to know that some of them are the most impressive, honest, decent people I've ever met, and some aren't. <laughs> just to take us back to the, the pay point, I think it's a real mistake to think that you have to pay more to get people who will be excellent MPs. Um, and, you know, I don't think, you know, that you get what you pay for argument is is entirely right. There are lots of people on much lower salaries than 85k mm-hmm. a year who would be brilliant MPs and bring really valuable life experience and skills to the House of Commons. I have to say, I do think there are some characteristics of people who choose to put themselves through <laughs> becoming MPs, which mark them out a bit from the rest of the population. I think you have to be a bit more of a, a risk taker mm-hmm. because it's a really risky endeavour trying to a get into politics in the first case, as you say, possibly spending a lot of your own money and and and, and then potentially getting thrown out again through no fault of your own yeah. because the tides of politics turn. I also think increasingly you have to become, you have to be a pretty thick-skinned person Mm -hmm. to be an MP. And I'm not sure that's very good for us as a country to have people who are prepared to put themselves through and their families through the abuse and the risk entailed in in being an MP in the the sort of current environment. I think, you know, that you you do have to have that willingness to do that if you're going to 
put yourself forward mm. for politics these days. So if we do want to move towards the, the Nolan principles that you set out, the integrity, the accountability, and all those other things that I can't remember, what are the things that we actually need to do sort of institutionally or structurally or in terms of the system which would make things better? So, I mean, it's a trite and often sort of repeated thing. I think the tone from the top is really important in terms of what the prime minister setting the rules that they think are the rules that they want people to follow and then following them themselves. You know, you wouldn't think it was something that was necessary to state, but I think that that is important. It's important to have rules, as we've said, that people understand that are sufficiently clear for everybody involved so that if there is bad behavior, people can't use, oh, I didn't understand the rules as, as an excuse. And people who are maybe subject to bad behavior are able to understand their rights to, to challenge those things and you know that there can be mm-hmm. consequences. But I do think, as you, you, know, you rightly say, Paul, the idea that there was a golden age when everybody was all following the rules is completely unrealistic. I do think there are probably some more things where we do need to write down some more of the rules and tighten things up a bit because just just relying, as as Nolan did, on having these principles and people will use their judgment and wish to not have the reputational damage of being seen yeah. to not act in line with a set of principles doesn't seem to be working. And there seems to be more and more evidence of that. So although I wouldn't say write everything down, because actually, as soon as you start having sets of rules, there are always gaps between rules. But I think maybe there is a bit more of a need for clarity in some areas. And there's got to be more to it than a prime minister coming in and saying, this is how I think the system. I mean, there needs to be something a bit more enduring than that, doesn't there? Yeah. Just one sort of um, question about how we fit in internationally. I mean, there was quite a lot of commentary around the expenses scan, expenses mm-hmm. scandal of um, whatever it was, 2009 or so, where there was lots of shock and outrage. But there was another group of people saying, this is a pitiful little stuff. If you go to these foreign countries, they're much <laughs> worse than this. I mean, it's, it's, I mean where, where, where does the truth lie? I've no earthly clue, so I'm going to look at Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's, that's you know, fair in terms of uh, quantum. If you look at some other countries, the amounts of money that some politicians get stung for having embezzled or in, in some way misappropriated are much higher. And there were people who decided to step down for, from from politics in the UK for, you know, accidentally buying a tin of dog food <laughs> and not uh, having claimed it on a receipt. And so, you know, th- the scale is is different. I think partly, though, it's, it's to do with our own image of ourselves as a country. And I, I guess this might be a, a theme that we we come back to, but the sense that we are sort of rule followers and that we set ourselves high standards and so on, and that that's more disappointing to people when those standards aren't met. We also have a very active popular press who are very good at picking up on, mm. on the small things, which is a good thing for us in the long run if you pick up on the small things and maybe it's harder for the bigger, more outrageous frauds or embezzlements or whatever to happen. So I guess maybe that's a reason to be positive. On the other hand, if the activeness of the press then puts people off going into politics in the first place, because they think they'll be stung for doing something that was inadvertent or that they genuinely didn't mean to do, then that could end up being bad for the sorts of people who end up in our politics. But again, we also do have a disenchantment with politics amongst the public that this is part of the, not the whole reason, I think, Part of the reason is a failure to deliver with policy. Yeah. But I think another part of it is a dissatisfaction with how people see the system working. And I think that is as important as anything else here. So, yeah, if the uh, if the economy was going gangbusters and the asylum system was working and uh, all of those sorts of things, then yeah. we might be a little bit more forgiving Absolutely. of uh, poor behaviour. Yeah. But actually, we've got a country that isn't working very well and Precisely. apparently rather yeah. a lot of bad behaviour going on. 
we could talk about all sorts of things here, of course. But where do honours fit into this? Um, you know, in twenty twenty three, we've had lots of discussion about resignations, honours lists, but over much much longer periods of time, and we could look back a century to the sort of um, honours lists from Lloyd George and others. There's a sense that there's so much power vested in the figure of the prime minister when it comes mm. to doling out whether it's peerages or other forms of patronage to use a much overused phrase absolute power corrupts absolutely there's an awful lot of power there yeah you know are we just setting up for for, for corruption i think we have to distinguish between handing out gongs and handing out seats in the legislature i think they're very different things on seats in the legislature i put my cards on the table i'm a great fan of an appointed house of lords and not necessarily so much a fan of an elected House of Lords, but there is obviously something deeply, deeply wrong with the system at the moment, because as ever, we've been talking about this again, we have this peculiar system where there are some rules and there are a bunch of people who are meant to point out if those rules aren't being followed, and then the Prime Minister can simply ignore them. As we've seen a couple of times with appointments to the House of Lords, the system needs to be tightened up. I hate the idea, the very principle of a seat in the legislature being used as a reward I think a seat for the legis- in the legislature should be given to people who can contribute something to that legislature. I don't think we'll ever get to that stage necessarily. But it is, it's the House of Lords side rather than the other that really, really concerns me. Uh, I think the House of Lords does some fantastic work. I think in its scrutiny role, it often puts the Commons to shame. In my dealings with parliamentary committees, I have never ceased to be impressed by the workings of Lords committees and the way they operate, but we have to do something about the way we appoint. And of course, the secondary question to that, and I have no solution to this, is the House of Lords is just getting a little bit big as well. Yeah, I think there are various uh, possible solutions to that one, which you can uh, put in place without <laughs> demographic doing, churn, <laughs> without a major reform to the Lords. I, I totally agree with everything you've just said. Only to add that I think that actually resignation honours, as we've recently yeah. seen uh, a flurry of, obviously with our quick turnover in prime ministers, are the are the most egregious form yeah. of giving out of peerages. It's all very well to to be able to give honours, and I should declare an interest as a as a holder of a gong. But you know, it's all very well to to say thank you to some people by giving them a, an MBE or an OBE who helped you when you were prime minister. But as you say, Anand, a sort of reward for having helped you as prime minister of a seat in the legislature seems to me to be wholly inappropriate. It ought to be about what you're going to contribute going forward and choosing the right people from that point of view. Yeah, which also means. This idea that if you've got a certain job, you can expect a peerage is silly. You know, whether it's cabinet secretary or a permanent secretary, or even don't get me started on bishops. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We need to have a long, hard look at that system because actually it could be a very, very effective one. And it's being undermined yet again by this process of how we're appointing. We could go off with error, couldn't we? Um, We should have done politics, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Economics is boring. (laughs) By comparison, yes, you might be right. Um, Don't tell my colleagues. Uh, final, final question. In terms of appointments to other public bodies, so again, in 2023, we've had the chairman of the BBC having to stand down because mm-hmm. he appears to have been financially involved in some way with the prime minister. We clearly had efforts, political efforts, to determine who was going to be in charge of Ofcom, mm-hmm. I think it was. And I'm sure we're all aware of other public appointments where politics has played a role, should mm-hmm. we say. And this was also true. You know, it's always been true. And yet we have this supposedly independent process 
with a, a public appointments committee and so on. How much do we worry about the influence of politics on the appointment of so many really important roles in public life, which are, in principle at least, not supposed to be directly influenced by politics? I, mean, I think you're right to say that this has always been an issue. It's not an. It's not a new thing. There's been a always mm. been a tendency for governments to to choose people to put into some of these high profile roles who broadly their views align with their own. I think what's what's really important from my point of view is the capability to do the job. I mean, what we need to worry about is when people are put into a role who don't have the skill set, don't have the experience, but are political fellow travellers of the appointing minister. And so we need to make sure we retain a system for public appointments where it's totally appropriate for, for ministers to have a say. But the idea that they get, you know, would ever get to appoint someone who a panel with a sufficiently independent element thought were not above the line is, is so, the thing that being so really problematic. With these positions being significantly political appointments, because if there are two people above the line, it should be fine for the you know, the one in sympathy with the government of the day to be appointed because of that, even if they actually came second in the interview process. I think the the panels who make these appointments now are savvy to the fact that you know if you if you if somebody is above the line, then the minister is is now able to appoint whoever is above yeah. the line. If you genuinely think that somebody is, is not going to be uh, appropriate for the role, perhaps precisely, you know, they might be capable but precisely because of their political alignment would make them inappropriate for the role, then they shouldn't be above the line. So I think, and that's why, you know, we've seen ministers in some contexts choosing to rerun competitions and so on, because they haven't had their preferred candidates mm. get above the line. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of framing the, 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 the job description at the start and having that intervention, having that final decision at the end, I don't think there's a problem with that being for ministers. I don't think ministers should be able to interfere all the way through the process, mm, which is something that we also have expressed some concern about and which often slows down the process, which then means that people who are good candidates for roles don't apply because they think, oh, I'm not getting uh, involved processes, in that. Uh, processes in public sector. We can have another thing. Processes in public sector appointments. And, uh, <laughs> a whole podcast. Mind-bogglingly <laughs> mad. Yeah. I mean, as long as that, that line is a line based on merit, you know, you have the qualifications to do the job. And I agree with Hannah that, you know, as long as all the shortlisted candidates or both the shortlisted candidates have the professional ability to do the job, that I'm relative. I mean, I would rather a system in which it wasn't down to government or ministers, but I don't think that's achievable. So I'm relatively relaxed as long as the professional qualifications are there, to be honest. But, you know, this is all a function of an increasingly polarized society. And I'm not one of those people that thinks we're like the United States. I mean, Hank Evans, we're miles away from being the United States in terms of polarization. But you can see the hints of it, can't you? Uh, whether it's in the language of enemies of the people used about judges, this notion that you can't trust them to do stuff in our interest is really, really pernicious. And actually having a strong merit-based system is one way of fighting back against that, I think. I guess the other way in which we're very different from the US is that whilst we may worry about the influence of money in British politics, yeah. it, it doesn't begin to touch the sides of what's happening in the yeah. US. We've, as ever, spent too long talking. <laughs> um, we've touched on MPs' pay. We've touched on who our politicians are. We've touched on the role of politicians in as ministers and as constituency MPs. We've touched on the 
honor system. We've talked about money. We haven't talked much about sex, but that's probably a good thing. Um, and, <laughs> For another uh, time. <laughs> and, uh, and second jobs and so on. A huge number of issues there. But I think the, the key point that you've both made is that what really matters here is that we have a system which is both trustworthy and trusted. And we, we, we I, I think, are in, a, in a, a little bit of a nasty equilibrium here in which because too many people don't trust our political system and our politicians and possibly too many of them aren't trustworthy, then we're, we're, we're spiralling into a world in which there's a, a lack of trust on the one hand and a, a sense that trustworthiness isn't valuable on the other and, and rebuilding that as ever, putting that sort of thing back together is a lot easier, uh, a lot harder rather than destroying the trust and the trustworthiness in the first place. But I do think though that, I mean, let's try for a positive note. We Excellent. shouldn't we shouldn't be fatalistic about it. Actually, if you look at the stats from some other countries, they have managed to increase trust yep. in their in their politicians. Uh, that you can achieve an upward spiral. Um, and so I think what's actually really pernicious is when politicians just, just shrug their shoulders and say, was ever thus, people just don't trust politicians. There's nothing we can meaningfully do about it because the evidence is that's just not true. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Expert Factor. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. So please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.